All right, turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 6. And while we do that, I'm going to interject a little bit of an announcement that I forgot to pass on, uh, and that is, not only did I forget to put Sunday School in the announcement in the bulletin so that you could see it with your eyes, but I also forgot to arrange uh, nursery workers during the Sunday School hour. And so, if my words instill guilt or the Holy Spirit convicts you or whatever, I'm kidding. If that's something that you'd be willing to do during the Sunday school hour, uh, would you get with me? Uh, We need to cover that for the next five weeks, but next week would be the most urgent, and then I can work out the rest from there. Uh, We're going to record Sunday school, so if that's something that interests you, you can still get that later during the uh, for the adult section. Also, the adult class is going to be on fear and anxiety and how we handle that. Uh, I've chosen to do this because it continues to come up, not just because of what's happened in the past week, but it just it, for the last two years we've been more and more aware of the fear and anxiety in our own hearts. What do we do with that? Where do we go with that? Uh, how do we fight it? And so I would encourage you to be a part of that 9 o'clock uh, for the next five Sundays. And there's classes, of course, for all ages. Look with me now in God's Word. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. This is God's Word. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one, from a city, and two, from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, or be remembered, or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations, And I thought you would call me father and would not turn from following me. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. 
A voice on the bare heights is heard. The weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithful sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let, us dis- let's our- let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would now help us hear and understand it. Speak as only you can speak by your Spirit into our hearts. Penetrate our hard hearts. Soften them. Make them like this fallow ground that we might hear from you today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Following the indictment that we looked at in chapter 2 over the past two weeks, that indictment that was from the Lord, from Yahweh, toward uh, the people of Judah, explaining to them uh, the many ways they had transgressed the covenant, now comes this, a call to repentance. A call to repentance to Judah. But it's interesting, a lot of the language is written to Israel. Understand the northern kingdom, which had already been carried off into exile in 722 by the Assyrians, now they're being kind of set as a history lesson for Judah to learn from. The word that we see translated return, first in verse 7 in this passage, is here eight times, but it's used throughout the book of Jeremiah. It's clearly a theme, not only in this passage, but throughout Jeremiah's message. We could distill Jeremiah's message as simply this. It's a call by God for his people to return to him. Return to me, he says, over and over again. But what stands out to me in this passage is verse 10, that there was in this clear call to return an evident pattern on behalf of Judah to fake it. He says that their returning had been under pretense that it had been a hoax, a sham, an act of fakery in which the people said and pretended to honor God with their hearts, but their hearts were far from Him. Does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar in every age because it's true of us in every age. Read through the history books, look around our own world, and look in your own heart and life, and you'll discover that we all experience this. Times, seasons, periods where 
We acknowledge God with our actions. We do stuff that looks good. Maybe it impresses a lot of people. Maybe it fools a lot of people. Maybe people think that we're really pious. But we know in our heart of hearts that our, our love is not there. It's grown cold. And this is what had become true of the people of Judah. They would call to him when they feared trouble. They would occasion show up at the temple. Maybe they would pay for a sacrifice to be made on their behalf. They might even use some religious talk or knowledge of the law to sound pious in front of their friends, but they simply did not love God with their whole hearts. And their actions made this clear. That's what happens. What's inside works its way out. We're, we're good at faking, but we're not very good at covering. It's one of the reasons why we need to live life together as believers. You know, if you're in the habit of only coming on Sunday... Let me encourage you to build relationships beyond that because it's real easy to come up and be invisible once a week for an hour, to nod and to, to, to sing and to recite prayers and to say things and to look and feel pious. But when we walk through life together, those things that we hide and cover up are often revealed. They went up. They faked it. Why? Because their hearts were far from God. What did they love more than Him? Well, they loved pleasure. They loved the idols that they worshipped. They loved appearing acceptable in the pagan culture that they lived in. That's something that's gripped the modern church. They looked to things that would save them. Things that couldn't save them. Assyria, Egypt, other powers. With their lips they professed to honor God, but their hearts were far from Him. So any sense of returning that is described here, is returning in pretense or it is repentance as a charade. In the indictment, we saw how seemingly impossible it was for the people of Judah to ever be redeemed. They had blown it. They had broken the covenant. They had adulterated the marriage bond. God would be completely righteous if he turned his back on them. In fact, they even wondered if he would be angry forever in in verse 5 of chapter 3. But he even points out that they were doing this in pretense, that they were assuming that the fatherly relationship that they called was something that he owed them. They were beyond deluded by their sin. This is what sin does. It deludes us. And if we continue in sin, our hearts become hard to the point that we become beyond delusional. We become insane. This is what Paul writes of in Ephesians 4. Their hearts darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them due to the hardness of their hearts. So if it wasn't seemingly impossible for Judah to be redeemed, why did he send Jeremiah? Why send a prophet? If they had really blown it, why call them to return back to him? Well, herein is the hope of the message. It is the hope that with God all things are possible. Yes, that verse is actually speaking of the power of the gospel and not the ability of sports teams to win their games. With God all things are possible. Is the power of God to do that which we know is impossible, to bring dead people to life. In this passage we see a pleading by Yahweh to return to Him because He is merciful even though they had taken him for granted. Verse 5, will he be angry forever? He says to them in verse 12, I will not look at you in anger, 
For I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. And more than simply promising not to be angry, look at what he says in verse 22. He promises to heal your faithlessness. To heal our faithlessness. Even in Old Testament Jeremiah, we see the shadow of the gospel. It's far off, but we see the shadow coming. We hear that far off trumpet blast of the announcement that sin and death will be defeated here in Jeremiah. And so look with me now in verses 6 to 10. We see that there is a failure to learn from history. That's a phrase that, uh, or a, a, a saying that we often hear, if you, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And it's, it's echoed here. This is, in a sense, what Jeremiah is saying. And yet we know that simply knowing history doesn't mean that we won't repeat it. Why? Because we're knuckleheads. We, we, we won't learn. I mean, this is true privately and corporately. We do the same things over and over and expect different results. We do this in our own hearts and lives, and we do this as nations and, and other groups of people where we look around and we should have learned from the mistakes of others, but we don't. And this is what Judah had done. Verse 6 dates this call to repentance. It's early in Jeremiah's ministry. It's one of the few that he dates. He says he, he announced this under King Josiah's reign. This was the first king that Jeremiah prophesied under, so this is early on. And the indictment is repeated, but it is applied to Israel rather than to Judah. You notice it's the same language that we read in the indictment toward Judah in chapter 2 about them sinning everywhere, under every green tree and on every hill, this hyperbolic language of, listen, this is, this, you're just doing this all the time everywhere. I mean, you're not even hiding your sin. You're not even faking it. Now this same indictment is applied to Israel. And this is done because in verses 7 and following, Judah is called out for not learning from Israel's mistake. We hear Yahweh say, I thought she would return to me. And that sounds a little strange to us because we think, isn't God omniscient? Doesn't He know all things? Well, this is anthropomorphic language again, where God condescends to us, and we see human-like language attributed to God, not to lower His omniscience or to lessen the fact that He knows everything, but to simply help us understand the heart of God. He is saying, using language that we can understand, you ought to have returned. This is what you should have done. And we'll see other phrases like this throughout the message. It is meant pedagogically to instruct Judah, this is how you should have lived. You should have learned from your sister Israel. She should have returned after witnessing the, subsequent, the sins and the subsequent discipline that she received. Judah should have learned from the northern kingdom. Verse 10 states clearly that Judah's appearance, even the appearance of repentance, was not genuine, but in pretense. That's the verse really in this entire passage that strikes me with the deepest conviction. How often do we approach our God with pretense? Think back just to the last 48 hours. I haven't been watching you. I don't know. But I just know my own life. In the past few days, how have we lived? How have you spoken to your spouse or your children, to your coworkers, to your friends? To your, to your neighbors? What have you looked at on the internet, on television? How have you reacted toward other drivers, toward other shoppers, or to anyone else who got in your way? 
What judgments have you passed on other believers over matters that you think you've mastered? Not only are we able to look back, but we also anticipate what awaits us when we walk out of here. The battle awaits us. How quickly will our hearts grow cold? We gather in worship and our hearts are warmed up and that's good. That's what we should experience in worship. But so often by the end of the day, we see things eek back in. Coldness grip us. Malice, bitterness, greed. How many of us will go home today thinking about how somebody looked at us in the narthex? Or didn't speak to us in the narthex, the foyer. (laughs) Or how somebody did this or that. Or we felt judged. How quickly our hearts, our fickle hearts, lead us astray. You see, the sincerity of true faith and repentance is not measured by church attendance, by Bible reading, by evangelism or teaching or singing together, external things that we can all do while remaining far from God in our hearts. No, true faith and repentance is demonstrated in our wholeheartedly trusting in Christ, hating our sin, turning from that sin, all while endeavoring to walk in obedience. That's a summary of the confession question or the catechism question number 76 that I read to you last week. That's what faith and repentance looks like. While there is outward conformity, there is fruit from our hearts Uh, repenting and trusting in Christ, the work and the effort comes first inwardly in our hearts. But as soon as we think about this and we go, okay, that's where the battle is. The little legalist rises up inside of all of us and shouts like Judah, I'm not so bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Look at all the good things that I've done. Look, I have a list here. I do this and I do that and I do so-and-so. And we want so badly to justify ourselves. But when we do, true repentance and true faith is far away. It is a charade. And this is a battle that we all face. In verses 11 to 13, we see this clear call to repentance led off with this scathing indictment, again directed at Israel. Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. What does this mean? Does this mean that, that Israel is wor- or better than Judah? Judah's worse? Well, this is not a theological statement on the level of sins, but it does show us that Judah's sins are more heinous than Israel simply because she witnessed the warning and did not apply the instruction of her own heart. Again, if that's something that you're not familiar with, how our sins can be more heinous than others... Again, I'll point you to the Catechism, question 151. It's long. The answer is really long. It it, it helps. But if that's something that you've never heard before, you've never thought about, consider looking at that. I'm happy to provide it to you uh, with the verses and so forth that show that we are held to a greater account when we've heard the instruction of God and we choose to disobey willingly as opposed to the one who has never heard. We are held to a greater account as Judah is here for for, for witnessing the discipline and the correction of God and continuing to be so hard-headed 
as to not learn from the discipline of others. We are to learn. This isn't just an Old Testament concept. We see this in the New Testament. Paul told a young pastor, Timothy, this is what you should do in your new congregation. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, so that the rest may stand in fear. Why does he give him that instruction? To make the, to shame the people who have sinned? No. So that the rest may stand in fear that we would not walk in the same paths of others, that we would learn from each other's mistake. Treacherous Judah should have learned from faithless Israel and turned back to Yahweh from her idolatry and sinfulness. The appeal to Judah in verses 12 and following we see is based on the mercy of God. Return, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. God pours forth His kindness in this appeal and says simply to them, Admit your wrong." We've talked about this recently. How hard is this? Who likes to admit they're wrong? None of us do. He's saying just stop it and admit your guilt. But we don't want to. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to learn or listen to God or those He sends to instruct us. Our preference, like Judah, is just to keep on going in our sin and making excuses For many reasons. We make excuses because of the way other people treat us, the way life hasn't worked out, the way we dreamed it would, or because we feel slighted in some other way. And because of these things, we feel like we haven't gotten our own, and so we justify stealing from our employers because they don't value us. Or it's tax season. We justify stealing from the government because we don't think they need our money. We justify yelling at our spouse or our kids because they haven't met our expectations or simply giving the cold shoulder to punish them because they've disappointed us. We justify our judgmental attitudes about money, child-rearing, physical health, theological positions because after all, look at us, aren't we doing it right? And God says to us, stop, quit it. Lay down your self-righteousness and idolatry of self-justification. You cannot justify yourself. Return to me. Look to me. You see, the message of salvation by faith alone is not simply a New Testament concept. It's here. Here it is. Turn to the Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. Turn and trust Him. Salvation is by faith alone. And that message continues in verses 14 to 20. But here we see some new covenant hope sprinkled in. Now some understand the description here as only applying to the reunification of the two kingdoms following the exile. And it certainly does speak of that. But as we've talked about in other prophetic books that we've looked at or or passages that we've looked at, like with, with Revelation, even the prophecies in Genesis, there's often an immediate fulfillment and often something that's further off, and here we see both. There will be shepherds after my own heart, he says. They will, they're promised to multiply in the land, both of which had an immediate fulfillment that would come. But in verses 16 and 17, we see some things that would have been beyond the comprehension of most of God's people under the Old Covenant. No more Ark of the Covenant? What? <laughs> no. People under the Old Covenant couldn't have understood that. They couldn't have agreed with that. They couldn't have imagined life without 
the Ark of the Covenant. Now, historically, we don't know where it disappeared, but we know that after this time is about, it's likely during the Babylon invasion that it was either hidden to disappear later or it disappeared and was taken by the Babylonians. But there was a little bit of prophecy there that the Ark of the Covenant was going to disappear. But he says to them, they won't even miss it. How is that possible? The Ark of the Covenant symbolized the very throne of God, the presence of God, where God would meet His people. Here, Jerusalem is called the throne of God. All of it, not just the Ark, not just the temple, but all of Jerusalem said that Judah will no longer follow their stubborn heart. That's hard to imagine. And then all the nations shall be gathered to the throne of God. Clearly, clearly, New Covenant language. Nations. This is what was promised. It was promised all the way back to Abraham, and you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But here it becomes clear. And in the New Covenant, we see nations are gathered in salvation through the gospel of Jesus. The law is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. The presence of God comes to earth in the birth of Jesus. And we now have access to the very mercy seat that's set above the ark through Jesus. We don't miss it. Why? Because we have better access. We have the presence of God with us by His Spirit. Because of the new covenant that was to come, what we could not do for ourselves, that is new birth, Jesus comes and raises us from the dead and gives us His Spirit. And yet, even with that revelation that we have in the new covenant, we still struggle like Judah, don't we? We still go after our own wants. We discover and make our own idols. And that is why the message to Judah still applies to us today. Turn and follow me, Yahweh says. In verses 21 to 25, the call to return continues. Here it's, here it's, it's presented as this uh, prescribed litany almost between God and His people in verses, or it continues on from verse 21 to into the opening of chapter 4. I say prescribed rather than described because it is clear what is being written here is not descriptive. We've already been told that what Judah has been doing was in pretense. It isn't genuine. This is rather prescribing what Judah ought to be saying, what they ought to be doing. And it's presented in this litany between Yahweh and Judah with the back and forth almost like a responsive reading. The first thing prescribed in verse 21 is for them to acknowledge their wrongdoing and to mourn the wretchedness of their sin. Acknowledge your wrongdoing and mourn the wretchedness of your sin. And then the Lord promises in verse 22 to heal them. From the second half of verse 22 on to 25, Judah is portrayed as acknowledging their sin, humbling themselves before God as their only Savior, lamenting their shame and naming their sins. But again, this is only something that's being prescribed for them and not described. And then Yahweh responds in chapter 4. But before we look at that, I want you to notice verse 22. This is the promise. I will heal your faithlessness. That word faithlessness is translated depending on what version of the Bible you have. You may have backsliding. Um, that's, that's kind of an older term, but that may connect with you as you think about it, you know, to picture it, falling away. Whichever word we consider, the idea is the same. God promises to heal us even from our running from Him. God promises to heal us from our faithlessness. 
It's like a doctor saying, I'm going to heal you from the poison while you're still drinking it. And we all know that we will fail and we will falter. And yet in His mercy, He promises to heal us. He is the keeper of the covenant, not us. He is the one who restores the marriage, not us. He is the one who gives us new life and makes us whole. He is the only Savior. That's what Judah needs to hear, and it's what you and I need to hear today. So why would we continue to repent as a charade? Well, he knows we'll fail in this too. We struggle with this as well. Our hearts, when I say our hearts are fickle, I, you know, they are. Because I, I, I can't think of a better word. The moment that I think I'm dealing with this and I kind of get my hands around this, all of a sudden this pops out over here. And it's like whack-a-mole trying to deal with all the different issues that are in my heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? He knows we'll fail in this as well. And the promise is to keep us and that nothing can separate us from Him. His faithfulness and His mercy knows no end. Now look in chapter 4 and let's consider Yahweh's instruction as we close This is a clear description of what repentance is. It is helpful. It is practical. It's worth coming back to and looking at again and again. Look at the first two verses. Jeremiah 4, verses 1 and 2. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness... The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. First, the turning that we are called to is not to a religion or to a religious practice, but to a person. To me, you should return. This is a matter of our hearts before it's a matter of our actions. There is obedience to come, the fruit of faith, but first comes the heart. And it is not just a commitment to knowledge or to an ideology but to a person. It's easy for us to become committed to knowledge or an ideology, to a theological system. I'm this, I'm that. But how committed are we to the person of God? Our God is a personal God. To me, you should return. We are called to know Him, to love Him, to talk to Him, and to hear from Him in His Word. Second, we're to remove the roadblocks of sin. What you know is wrong and refuse to remove, what you know is sinful but willfully continue to do, these are the detestable things that we're called to remove. We are called to mortify or to kill sin in our hearts. Third, walk faithfully and do not waver. Now, we know this isn't sinless perfection. We won't experience sinless perfection until we're glorified in heaven. But this is a call not to waver. It's a call to live consistently, to not live as a hypocrite. When we repent, or when we sin, rather, we repent. We repent quickly, and we repent deeply. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I'm more and more convinced that the mark of maturity among Christians is not perfectionism, but it is a deeper awareness of our own sinfulness and a greater awareness of our need for Jesus. And I could add to that another mark of maturity for believers is a quickerness to repent. That's not a word, but you understand what I'm saying? We're more, we, we move toward repentance more quickly 
as we grow in grace and knowledge. Fourth, walk in obedience, in truth, in justice, in righteousness. And as believers, our lives matter. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to Him. We're called to be a kingdom of priests unto our God. This was the same call given to Old Testament Israel. God's people have always been called out and set aside to be a kingdom of priests to our God that others might see our good works and glorify Him. If we're not living consistently in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then we smear the name of Christ and we lead other people to disdain Him through our hypocrisy. As Christians, we ought to be the first to stand for justice and to live justly, to show mercy, and to live rightly according to the truth. Now that spells it out. You can come back to that and see what repentance looks like. But then in verses 3 and 4, he gives us some word pictures to help us understand. The first one in verse 3, till up the ground. You can't have a good harvest until the soil is loosened, until the weeds and the thorns are removed. Because what happens if you put soil down or seed down in unloosened soil? The sun just dries it out. What happens if you plant among thorns and weeds? They choke out the seed. The, the soil has to be dealt with. Our hearts need to be tilled up. We need that work of the Holy Spirit. Second, the picture of circumcision is used. This is a little harder for us to relate to. But think of how Judah would have heard this and how they would have responded. What would Judah's response have been when they, when they hear, circumcise yourselves? They would have said, yeah, we did that. Check mark. We're good. Next. To which God drives home the point, no, 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 no. Your hearts. Circumcise your hearts. It may be easier for us to comprehend what he's saying here by applying the new covenant sign uh, that is circumcision, that is baptism, which is cleansing. If I said, if a prophet came and said to us today, baptize yourselves, we'd all be like, yeah, I already did that. I'm clean. He's like, no, 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 your hearts. Cleanse your hearts again and again and again. The cleansing, similar to the cutting away of circumcision, was never meant to simply be a physical act. We are baptized only once, but we are called on to remember our baptism, to remember the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit and the renewal of His work in repentance. We repent, we turn from sin to God, to be washed and cleansed from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, nine, We need the Holy Spirit's continuing work to till up the ground and the cleansing work of forgiveness in our hearts. Now for us today, we're on the other side of the cross. Judah saw this far off, through the cloud, through the mist, foggy, not really sure what this was going to look like, sure of the promise, but unsure. We look back and we realize in the person of Jesus how it's all been fulfilled. He has come to cleanse us from our sins, to give us new life, and to show us the hope of the resurrection to come. But in many ways, we're still the same. We're still the same as Judah. We still struggle in a world wrecked by sin. We still live among people who sin against us daily. And most importantly, we're still in bodies with hearts that battle sin constantly. We're ever aware of this, our sinfulness, our need of a Savior in this present life. And it makes our redemption all the more glorious when we realize from all that we have delivered, been delivered from in this great salvation that is ours in Jesus. 
This should lead us to want to repent, to want to turn to God. Remembering and reflecting on all that Christ is for us moves us toward Him. When we don't feel it, when the struggle feels real, sometimes it's so heavy it feels tangible, then we run back to Him and hear the promise, I will heal your faithlessness. I, God, will heal your faithlessness. So may our repentance not be a charade, a scam that we enact by church involvement or religious speak, but may we humble ourselves and admit our wrongdoing and our need for forgiveness. May we lament our sinfulness and may we be broken over the many ways that we've severed the covenant. And then may we rest completely in the knowledge that Jesus paid the wage of sin, which is death, for us so that we would not have to. The psalmist says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Let's pray together.